0: And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You can be seated as we pray. Father, this is not just my prayer. This is our collective prayer right now. We acknowledge that we need your voice. We ask you to speak. As your word is here before us, may your spirit take it and use it in our hearts to probe deep, to cut where we need to be cut. That's our prayer, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hold on to your seats, everybody. I'm about to make an announcement that could leave some of you shrieking with excitement. Disney has announced the release date for Frozen 2. It's November 22nd, 2019. (laughs) Nicely done. Okay, so for the biggest fans out there, that's old news. But we should at least be curious about this Frozen 2, because it's actually really hard to make a sequel to a successful musical. That's because what makes a musical magical is the unique combination of, of a particular moment And then a song that gives perfect voice to that moment. It's the combination of that moment and that song that's so moving. So you have what was referenced a moment ago, Let It Go in Frozen. In Les Miserables, you have One Day More. The Greatest Showman has This Is Me. For each one of those, there's a moment And then there's the song that just makes it sing. So this morning, we're looking at a song, Mary's song. But if we're going to hear Mary's song with the right ears, we have to understand the moment. The moment in which it was sung. So, I want to take the first part of the sermon, just set up that moment but I'm going to do it for you by way of an analogy. Imagine there's an old Western movie. It's called Black Bee Comes to Blackfoot. As the movie begins, trouble has fallen on the little town of Blackfoot because the bad guys have been able to take over the place. It's corrupt. and It's a miserable place for everyone to live. The only way to get ahead is to sell out and join the villains. And as you see in the movie, that doesn't always end well either. The lone bright spot in Blackfoot is Julia. She's doing everything in her power to fight the corruption. But of course, she's powerless in the face of that entrenched evil. That doesn't keep her from striving with every fiber of who she is to try and save her little town. Now, as the movie unfolds and depicts the dark situation in Blackfoot, it occasionally cuts away and introduces you to a new character, a character that doesn't live in Blackfoot. The first is Frank. He's a gruff, straight-talking cattleman who's a crack shot, and, an, and as honest as the day is long. Then there's Hector. Hector is an ex-con, who's gotten himself now on the right side of the law. He's looking to make right, make right his wrongs. And of course, Black Bee himself. An intriguing wanderer, with a noble streak in him. He's always looking out for the victimized. He's complex, but you can't help but root for him. Not just because his name's in the title of the movie. Now, toward the end of the movie, of course, Frank and Hector have found their way to Blackfoot. And there's a scene, since it's a Western, it's taking place, of course, in the saloon. Frank's playing poker somehow taking money from the bad guys despite their cheating. Hector's in the corner alone, sizing everything up. Julia's in the middle of a scrum, calling out the thug's ringleader. And the tension is rising. Suddenly, in walks Blackaby. Blackaby comes to Bigfoot. And everybody watching the movie knows the movement, the moment that the movie has been building toward is here. All the key players are in the room. You don't know how it's going to happen, but you know Blackfoot is going to be made right. And that's the moment we're at in the Gospel of Luke. That's the moment we're at As the scriptures unfold. The world is like Blackfoot. Ever since humanity rejected God as their king. Corruption has set in. We are a mess. But as the Old Testament unfolds. God starts introducing us to key figures. So you have the barren woman Hannah. In 1 Samuel, after years of God being silent, faithful Hannah comes on the scene. But as she gets, becomes advanced in years, she remains barren and she cries out to God for a child. And God uses this barren woman to give birth to Samuel. The man who would prepare the way for King David. The man who would be a prophet of God after so many years of silence. So the key figure, number one, that we're introduced to is the barren woman, Hannah, and her special son. Next, there's David himself. The one Samuel was preparing the way for. This this righteous deliverer who unites Israel. And in so doing, he gives us a taste of the good that we're all longing for. But he also fails in some serious way. And we realize that he himself is not our ultimate hope. But critically, God makes a promise to David. A promise that one of his children, one of his offspring, would sit on an eternal throne and make all the bad things good again. Next you have Elijah one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. There's so many exciting stories about Elijah, but well after Elijah has passed up into the heavens, God tells us through the prophet Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to the fathers lest i come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction so you got elijah and finally you have an angel named gabriel now here's where gabriel shows up here's where he comes onto the scene pretty late in the game israel has gone into exile that means they've lost the promised land. They're spread out. They're dispersed. They're not a, a son of David's not on the throne. There's a foreign nation ruling over them. And it's beginning to look like everything is lost. All of God's promised victory is seeming pretty, pretty far-fetched right now. And God raises up a prophet named Daniel. And Daniel actually hopes in God in the midst of exile. And so God gives Daniel this grand, complex vision of his ultimate victory. But the vision's so complex, Daniel's like, ah, I don't even understand what's going on in this vision. And so God sends the angel, Gabriel, Gabriel to come and announce the details of God's victory. So Gabriel is the mouthpiece explaining God's victory plan. Hannah, barren woman, and her son. David, David's son. Elijah, or the prophet like Elijah who'd come later prepare the way. And Gabriel, who announces God's victory plan. Just a few of the clues the Old Testament gives. But then, about a hundred years after Daniel, God goes silent. And the silence goes on for decades. And the decades turn into centuries. Some 400 years pass without a single word from God that's like God not speaking to us since the pilgrims came to America it's a long time then suddenly in Luke chapter 1 Gabriel appears on the scene and who does he appear to? a barren couple And Gabriel tells them that the child born of them will come, quote, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And then the camera flashes to another scene. Over here we have Gabriel again. This time he's announcing to a young virgin that she too will give birth. This child will come upon her not through natural relations, but by the Holy Spirit. And Gabriel says of this child, God will give him give to him the throne of his father David. Flash! 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 Barren woman conceives. Elijah coming to prepare the way. David's promised son arrived. And Gabriel's the one announcing it all. All the key players are in the room. Something big is about to happen. Big is an understatement. This, described in Luke 1, is the greatest moment in history. Because this means that God has broken into our mess. The movie of human history is reaching its climax. The good God is stepping in to right the mess. And then Luke describes this beautiful scene where the barren woman, Elizabeth, now pregnant, meets the young virgin Mary, who's also with child, and the barren woman's Elijah, that's John the Baptist, leaps with prophetic joy at the mere presence of the baby Jesus in His mother's womb. And in this moment, all of creation, is calling for a song. If ever there was a time for a song, this is it. And there are songs. There's Mary's song, which we often call the Magnificat. After that comes Zechariah's song, which is called the Benedictus. Then the angel song, Gloria, in excelsis Deo. And even after that Simeon song, Nunc Dimittis. Such a moment. Such a great moment. And such songs. It's no wonder singing and songs are such a crucial part of Christmas time. We sing God and sinners reconciled. We sing, He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. We sing, Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Oh, come, let us adore Him. But the very first person to realize what was happening was Mary. And so Mary is the first to offer a song. And what a song it is. Spirit inspired it. It perfectly captures this glorious moment. So I think I've set up the moment for us. The great moment. So now let's dig into the great song. It was paired with that great moment. I want to look at the song. It's what I read. Verses 46 to 55. I hope if your Bibles are closed, you've opened them back up uh, because I want us to be looking at what's actually there. Here's what I want to do. I just want us to notice four important features of the song. Four important features of the song. First, Notice the singer that's chosen to sing it. Mary. A nondescript young girl from a nondescript town. She's not nobility. She's not formally trained as a theologian. Most likely, she's not even literate. From the world at that time's perspective, She's really got nothing going for her. Not only that, she's now pregnant out of wedlock. And yet she's the one that God has give voice to the song of the incarnation. That says something about our God. He doesn't value like the world values. He doesn't measure like the world measures. Young Mary may have had little going for her from a worldly point of view. But she was longing. Longing for the moment when God would step in and make things right. Or we could say she had faith despite the 400 years of silence, she was putting her hope in the truths of the Scriptures. And she believed God would save. So when she learns that the moment is happening, she sings. The nobody, Mary, sings. So that's the first thing we notice. It's who sings this song, and it's important Second, notice the focus of Mary's song. In the first line, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. When you magnify something, it means just make it big. Now, of course, God can't really get any bigger. It's not like we humans can make God bigger. But our perception of him can get bigger. There's an illustration of this. There's, there's a magnifying glass, right, that magnifies things. It takes something really, really small and magnifies it so that we can see it. But there's another kind of magnification, and it's what a telescope does. right? It, it looks out at something that looks like a speck in the sky, but is actually quite big. It's just because of our vantage point where we're situated that it seems small. And the telescope overcomes some of our natural limitations and helps us see how big it really is. So when she's calling on her soul to magnify the Lord, she's saying, let's be like a telescope. Let my soul be like a telescope to just help us humans who have such a limited vantage point of the greatness of God, help it Show what a great God we have. So Mary's soul is so caught up in the joy of what her Savior's done that she, she calls on her soul to magnify God. She wants to make much of God. Said The second observation is what the focus of the song is. She wants to make much of God. And this... After she says that, everything she says in the song is about what God's done. After the first line, it's really just a list of 10 things that God has done. Look with me. Verse 48 God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Verse 49 He has done great things for me. Verse 51. He has shown strength with His arm. Again in verse 51, He scattered the proud. Verse 52, Brought down the mighty. Again in verse 52, Exalted those of humble estate. And then verse 53, Filled the hungry with good things, and again, Sent the rich away empty. And verse 54, Helped His servant Israel. And even in verse 55, it talks of how He has spoken to our fathers. You see what she's doing? She's just saying, I want to magnify God. Here's what God's done. He's done this. 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 Except for it's much more poetic and beautiful. Magnify the Lord, she sings. And she states over and over all the great things He's done. This song is a humble but effusive ode to God. Just one thing that puts an exclamation point on this. At the end of verse 48, she actually speaks of herself on how all generations will call her blessed or blessed. Now it's interesting. Because some have actually taken this and and made it a word of veneration for Mary. Mary the blessed virgin, as if she is something great. Now, she is a remarkable woman, but that's not why she is saying it. She isn't saying, everyone will call me blessed. That's the opposite of what she's trying to do. She means that future generations will look at her and marvel at God. They'll see her and think, wow, what a God who blessed her that way. That simple servant girl like her can be made a mother of Jesus. Should make us marvel not at her, but at her God. That's the second thing we notice. The focus of her song is entirely on what God has done. It's all about magnifying God. And I want to say that's just what happens to us when we realize just how hard and dark our world is and then come to grasp that God has done something to make it right. When we can get those two things into our hearts, our songs will be as God-focused as hers was. When you see what God has done and you see the darkness of your own heart, in the brokenness of this world. You want to jump up and down and extol God. Your spirit rejoices in God, your Savior. Now, the third thing I want us to notice about this song is how scripture saturated it is. How scripture saturated it is. One could say, that it's, it's simply the message of the Old Testament in song form. I want to just give a few examples. So you're going to have to turn with me a little bit. Turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's on page 225. Page 225 if you're using the Pew Bible. Remember Baron, uh, Baron Hannah? Once Samuel's born, she sings a song too. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, listen, Just listen. Listen to how much Mary's song echoes Hannah's. My heart exults in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like Yahweh. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not the arrogance come from your mouth. For Yahweh is a God of knowledge. By Him actions are weighed. The The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she has many children, but she who has many f- children is forlorn. Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, he raises up. Yahweh makes poor and makes rich, he brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust, he lifts the needy from the ash heap, to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The pillars of the earth are Yahweh's, and in them he has set the world. Do you see? I'm, uh, do you see just so much of that song is right in Mary's song? Well, that's just one example. Turn to Psalm 98. Psalm 98, it's on page 500. I'll just read the first three verses here. Again, I have chosen this because it's a good example, but. Almost, I mean, you just open up to any page of the Psalms and read the songs, and you're going to hear themes that Mary's singing. So, Psalm 98, page 500, the first three verses Oh, sing to Yahweh a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Yahweh has made known his salvation, he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. You hear the themes. Um, I'm doing a one-year Bible reading, which I'd commend to you for this new year. And I'll also encourage you. um, I was reading in Ezekiel, which means I was about a month and a half behind this week. Got some reading to do to catch up. But I was reading in Ezekiel, chapter 21. And I was thinking about Mary's psalm, and there it is in Ezekiel 21. I'm just going to read verse uh, 26. It says, Thus says the Lord Yahweh remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low, and bring low that which is exalted. I mean, it's Mary's song, right? The point is, almost anywhere you prick the Old Testament, you're going to find these themes. Now, what that means is Mary knew her Scriptures. She wasn't theologically trained. She likely wasn't literate. But she knew the Scriptures. No doubt she sang the songs of the Scriptures. Everyone agrees she must have known Hannah's song probably by heart. Probably Miriam's song. Probably Deborah's song. Maybe she could sing all the psalms like today's teens can sing all of Taylor Swift's songs. And she likely memorized swaths of Scripture. You see, her young heart had been molded and shaped not by the culture surrounding her with its competing interests, but by the Scriptures. The heartbeat of the Bible becomes the pulse in her veins. And the same can be true for us. You think, oh, the Bible, like, I've tried reading it once or twice, or it seems like this thing, this distant ancient document out there. Here's the beautiful thing. As we dig into the Bible, we find that the longings it expresses are the longings we already feel. We find that the hope it offers is the hope we know we need. We find the deepest aches and groanings of our heart are answered in its pages. So it's it's not like this. It's not like we're computers and there's this software program that the scriptures kind of download onto us and all of a sudden. No. It's like there we're a stringed instrument. That note is sounded in the Scriptures. And that note starts to echo as it reverberates in the strings within us. There's a resonance. Our problem is simply that we don't know the Bible well enough. Well, we don't sing its songs. We need to get to know its themes. But when we do, like Mary, its words will become our song. That's the end of the third observation. Her song is Scripture-saturated. The fourth thing that I want you to notice is who the song is for. Who is the song for? Yes, she's addressing her own soul. In some ways, it's for her. But Mary says in verse 48, as we already saw, all generations will call her blessed. That means she knows what's happening for her is something that is for all generations. And then she makes the same point in verse 50. 50. She says, this mercy that I'm talking about, that I've just sung about, the mercy that God's shown me, isn't just something for me. The, The one who's done great things for her isn't stingy. The mercy is for all who fear Him from generation to generation. So she gets that the song she's singing is a song that belongs to all generations. And to underscore this point, she ends the song with a reference of God's covenant to Abraham and to his offspring. Now you might remember that the covenant to Abraham included that through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So it's a song for all generations, and it's a song for all the families of the earth. This is a song that all who embrace Jesus by faith can sing. It's a great song, paired with a great moment. And that leads me to the third and final focus in this sermon. We began with a great moment that gave rise to the great song, and that great song is about a great God. So I want to close the sermon by thinking about the great God who's at the center of the great song. And here's why. I want us to see God the way Mary sees God. I want us to know God like Mary knows God. I want Mary's song to be our song, but it will only be our song when we come to see God like Mary saw God. You may have noticed, if you're taking notes, that this has been a sermon of fours. Setting the scene. A great moment. Talked about four characters four things I wanted you to notice about the great song. So here are four truths about our great God from this song. First, He sees. He sees. Look at verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. Mary says, He noticed me. Me the great God of the universe who manages the stars and the planets, who is sovereign over the wind and the sea, the God who spoke this world into existence looked on me. He looked on the humble estate of his servant. Humble Servant hearted Mary, God saw. And if God saw Mary, He can see you. Your life that's coming unraveled faster than you can try and put it back together, He sees. That confused, desperate situation that you don't even know to make heads or tails of—he sees that heartache you feel, that you feel with sharper pain this time of year. He sees. Sometimes it's all you need to know that what well, you're going through is seen. And God sees. But God does more than see. Second thing about this great God, he also reverses our plight. He reverses our plight. I'm sure you noticed the reversals in verses 51 to 53. There's a moral reversal, the proud are scattered. There's a social reversal. The kings are brought low and those of humble estate are exalted. There's a material reversal. The rich are left empty, empty, while the hungry are fed. But Mary isn't trying to say that every king who has ever lived is brought low and impoverished because of what Jesus coming. And every poor person who ever lived is going to be exalted. She's not trying to say that everyone who has money ends up broke and all the poor people end up rolling in cash. She's saying that the broken, disordered system of this world is going to be fixed. The way this world works will fade. And it will give rise to the way God's kingdom works. And this new kingdom will bear little resemblance to the old. Our broken world gives advantages to those with power. Those who are self-reliant. Those who can climb to the top of their heap and thump their chests. But God's kingdom exalts those who are low. Those who realize their need. Those who grasp their smallness. Those who reel beneath life's crushing load. Those that feel their need for Him. And more often than not, those are the people whose situation in a literal way has brought them low. You see, in the coming of Jesus, we see God's commitment to fix this disordered world, to lift up the humble and to crush the self-righteous and proud. Now, it's true that we won't see that fully come to fruition until Christ comes again. But the coming of Christ in the incarnation with Mary is the commencement of God's rescue plan. The spaceship might not be in orbit yet, But the countdown has begun. Commence sequence for rescue in 10, 9, 8, like that, right? God sees your plight and He's done something about it. Christ has come and we know He'll come again. And when He comes again, we will enter into a kingdom where the broken plight of our world is reversed. Where tears you cry. Are wiped away where pain you carry is lifted where the ashes on your head are replaced with a beautiful headdress that is the way of our great God he sees he reverses our plight and third he keeps his promises That's Mary's focus in verses 54 and 55. She talks about how God told Abraham 2,000 years before Mary lived that He was going to do something to fix the broken world. He would replace the curse with blessing. God sends prophets reminding Israel that salvation is coming, but God's people waited. And they waited. At Mary's point, they'd waited two millennia after the promise of Abraham. They waited 400 years after the last prophet had spoken. But none of God's promises fail. What He says He will do, He will do. He's completely trustworthy. And Mary realizes that that promise is being kept in her and she celebrates. And I want us to have that same confidence in God. I want us to see God like she did. I want us to know that God keeps His promises. And that brings me to the last, the fourth thing I want to say about our great God. But it's the first thing Mary says about Him. Do you see what she calls Him in verse 47? My Savior. The fourth truth about our great God he saves. It's actually what the name Jesus means. Yah, J-E J, J is like Yah. Zeus is like saves. Yahweh saves. I want to pack that a little because Jesus did not just come out with a magic wand and wave it and make everything better. Humanity actually didn't need a magic wand because we with Adam are hardened Rebels. Though it's true at one level that we long for peace and wholeness and forgiveness, at the same time, we shake our fists at God and insist upon self-rule. Even we who are religious tend to do that. God must measure up to my standard. He must meet my expectations. And if He doesn't, I won't like Him. And what we really mean is that God must be an idol of my own fashioning. If I can't make God the way I want Him, I won't worship Him. You see, we're rebels at heart. And because of that, we're enslaved. We're enslaved to sin. It has its grip on us in a way we can't escape. And that also means we deserve to be crushed by God for our rebellion. Because the good king has to. If he is just, and if he's going to have a good kingdom, he must put a stop to those who are trying to sabotage his good reign. Justice must be meted out. And that means we need to be saved by something more than a magic wand. I mean, if meek and lowly Mary needed a Savior, how much more do I? But Jesus comes... To save, which means he came to free us from our slavery to sin. It means he had to pay the penalty. He had to deal with the justice of God, satisfy it, pay the penalty for our sin. It also means he had to change our nature from rebels to adopted sons. And all of that is accomplished on the cross. There, He took our sins, our rebellion upon Himself, and He absorbed the Father's wrath that should have gone toward us. He paid the highest price to ransom us back from sin. And when He did that, He broke the power of sin so that when we believe in Him, His Spirit can come and give us new natures. You see, Jesus actually saves. Not magic wand salvation. Not fairy tale fiction salvation. Died on the cross for our sins salvation. He was born to save the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. He was born to die so that we could have life. This child in Mary's womb is none other than Jesus, our Savior. The great moment of history which gives rise to the great song of a mighty God who saves. A song centered around The great God. Great moment. Great song. Great God. I don't know about you. That makes me want to sing. So let's pray and then let's sing. Father, help us to see you like Mary saw you. Give us just a glimpse of what we're seeing in this song. And may our hearts right now sing... Sing because you've commenced your rescue plan in Christ. Sing because of who you are. Sing because we're not dead in our sin. You, O Lord, you alone can rescue. Amen.